Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew, chapter 24. You know, um, one of the challenging things from being a former pastor that 99% of the time I would ever come to a worship service, I was the person preaching that day. And so I was used to the cycle that was good for me of preparing messages. And I decided when I was no longer a pastor here at Fielder that I would still always show up ready to go. And so Jim Parks, I'd always look and see who is preaching and I would come down to see how they felt <laughs> and, and just in case there was needed. Well, uh, that's never happened here, praise the Lord, until this week, okay? I ran on to Jim uh, Friday evening and we were having conversations. He said, hey, Jason's not feeling well. And I said, well, you mind him. I've always got a sermon in the sack, just jokingly. And uh, so I got a call on a text on Saturday morning, get ready. And Jason sent me his message. And uh, so I started studying his message and uh, his sermons are always so incredible. And uh, so, so I was kind of preparing along that way. And then I got a text to say, no, uh, I don't want you to do that one. I want you to do whatever, you know, something else. And uh, so next week, you're going to get a sermon, and I can just tell you already, it's great, okay? And uh, so from Jason. But it's a unique experience for me here at Fielder because I'm usually fitting in to the process of what's already so done so well in place, of fitting into the series. But this time is, what is the Lord saying to me that He would like for me to share with you? And so I'm looking for a word from, for you. And so I began to say, Lord, just tell me, tell me what you want to say today. And, and so I began to just let my mind wander through what's going on in our world today and being reminded of what is the number one question that I'm asked on a regular basis and what I want to address that. So I'm going to do that. The question is, are the Dallas Cowboys going to the Super Bowl? Okay. And uh, so I don't want to tell you what to do with your money on that one. No. As I visit with people today, and we talk about what's happening in our world, and especially in the kingdom of God, the number one question, I don't even know what is second, that I'm being asked on a regular basis, as people look at what's happening around us, is do I believe Jesus is coming back soon? Uh, Christians who understand that issue uh, see so much happening in our world, and the only thing that's going to solve it is the return of Jesus. And I'm being asked that on a constant basis. And so you would understand that that's a very easy subject to address because the second coming of Jesus is in every book of the New Testament except two, Second John and the book of Galatians. So anytime you're studying the Scriptures systematically, you're going to continually run on to the Scriptures that speak about Jesus' second coming. Chapter 24 of Matthew is probably the greatest section that he deals with. And I want you to look at verse number 3. He says he was on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, by the way, you need to realize his disciples were constantly asking him that question. They were constantly, when are you going to restore Israel? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? And Jesus addresses those things in this text. In verse number 30 and 31, he speaks about the Son of Man will appear 
uh, and the tribes of the earth will mourn. You'll see him coming in the clouds. He'll send his angels. There'll be a trumpet call and he will gather the elect. And so Jesus is constantly telling them, like right now we're studying the first time Jesus has come. The Bible is absolutely clear that Jesus is coming back again. It tells us every place. You go to the book of Thessalonians if we had time today. We would see that Paul said to the Thessalonian church, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to miss this because people were dying and, and Jesus had not come back. They thought it might be in the first generation. And he would give in chapter 5 a description of what will happen in those moments. And so for the 2,000 years since that time, the church has anticipated the coming of the Lord Jesus. And many have tried to identify the Antichrist and all kinds of ideas about what's happening related to that. And I'm not going to answer all the questions today. I'm just going to focus in on what I feel about the second coming of Christ. One of the things I know as I read this 23rd chapter, 24th chapter, is no one knows when it's going to happen. No one has any idea when it's going to happen. Look if you would. Verse number 30, uh, 36 but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or those writing books in America, nor the Son, but the Father only. All kinds of people will try and write books and they'll try and tell you when it's going to happen. But throughout this chapter, Jesus said it's going to come quickly. In fact, the Bible uses a phrase like a thief in the night. No one sits around their room thinking a thief's going to come. A thief comes suddenly. And it says it will be that way. One of the images it uses, ladies, is uh, the fact that, that, that you will see it happening and, and you'll feel it happening. But while we do not know when it's going to be, Jesus is also clear that we can see signs that would say to us, it is about to happen. Look, if you would, in this text, verses 32 and 33. He says, from, this is Jesus, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, you will know uh, that he is near. He is at the very gates. And so what Jesus said to them is, I'm not going to tell you when it is, but I want you to know you can read that what's happening in this world. At, at another place in this chapter, ladies, he talks about it being like birth pains. Any lady in this room that has had a child knows that when you're pregnant with that child and that child is moving, you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when this child is going to come. Now, certainly today we have some medical ways to bring that about. But in reality, naturally, no woman ever knows, but she does have indications. It's what only ladies in this room know. It's called birth pains. And I would say to you today, I believe we are certainly in the birth pains. I believe as I look at what's going on in our world today, what's going on in God's church, what I see in the kingdom of God when I see it's happening in the kingdom of this world, I want to say to you, you need to understand is it could be very, very, very soon. You say, well, Gary, what signs do you see? Now, I, I, by the way, if, if I was really to get into this, to all the signs, we would miss the cowboy game today, okay? So we're not going to know miss that, okay? And although today I feel like the Cooper Rush of the Dallas Cowboys, okay, uh, sitting in for the big guy, but uh, I, I want to just pick out three or four that I believe you ought to see and you ought to know are factual things that show that Jesus is coming. First one, what's happening in the nation of Israel? 
Now, what is unusual about this crowd today and about our world today is every one of us have lived our entire life with Israel being a nation. And so it would be very easy for you to think Israel has always been a nation. No, it's not. Let me just give you a brief overview of their history. Jesus came in about 3 or 4 B.C. He died on a cross around 30 A.D., and then the church flourished for 40 years. They were expecting him to come. And then in 70 A.D., the Jewish people decided to rebel against the Roman government. The Roman government controlled the world, and they controlled them. And so the Jewish people rebelled, 72 A.D., and the Romans said, okay, we're going we're gonna to deal with that. And so they killed thousands of the Jewish people. More importantly, in 72 A.D., they destroyed the temple. When you go there today, you have what is known on the Temple Mount as the platform that held the temple, and you can actually go to the street, which is below that Temple Mount area, and see the stones that Jesus prophesied would be pushed off and landed on that street. You can stand by them and see the prophecy that Jesus prophesied actually happened. Well, in 72 AD, the Romans still controlled the Jewish people, but then in 132 AD, the Jewish people decide we're going to die or we're going to, get, we're going to take control of this place. They rebelled again. Well, the Romans said, okay, you really want to know what's going to go on? They killed thousands of the Jewish people, not just thousands, tens of thousands, almost wiped out the entire Jewish race living in that part of the world. And they had what is known in Jewish history as the diaspora, which is what it means that they were uh, dispersed around the world at that moment. 132 AD, the Jewish people were scattered all over the world. That's why today, if you go to any large city anywhere in the world, you will find an enclave of Jewish people. You can go to Argentina. You'll find one down there. You can go to Ecuador. You can go to every city, every place, and there will be an enclave. Do you know where all that started? 132 AD, when the Jewish people were scattered, and listen to this, they were no longer a nation. From that moment on, there was never one, anyone who identified for 1,800, 1,900 years, the people called the Jews living in a nation of their own. They were dispersed around the world. Well, what happened? Well, the late 1800s, because the Jewish people were being persecuted around the world, there was a guy by the name of Theodore Herzl that decided he would start a deal called Zionism. And he would say to the people, we've been persecuted We've been treated terrible around the world. We're going to gather back to our homeland. By the way, it is their homeland. Anyone else who is there today is the occupiers, the Israeli people. It was given to them by God thousands of years ago. They're just today reclaiming the land that was theirs. But Herzl says, let's gather back. And so the people began to gather back. It began to develop momentum in the early 1900s when the people of Russia, there were thousands of Jews living in Russia, they began to do what's called programs, and they were killing Jews like crazy. And so they began to ask to come back, and they began to siphon back to Israel. And so Herzl began to lead people like that back to Israel. And so that little remnant of people that had existed, not as a nation, just a few people there tilling land, suddenly began to grow in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And when all that began to happen, and then the persecution in Germany from Germany in the 1930s, more and more began to come back. And then the horrible experience of the Holocaust happened. Six and a half million Jews were killed. Did you know that is one half of the entire Jewish population in the world? One half 
of them were killed. And they said, you know something? If we're going to live like this, we might as well die trying to reclaim our homeland. So they began to move in massive numbers back to Israel. And what happened is, is there's around Israel, there's 240 million Arab people that say, no, we thought we had you wiped out. You come back here, you'll be in one place. We will wipe you out. And so they tried to prevent them from coming back. Everyone tried to prevent them from coming back. Even the United States, even people in Britain tried to keep that from happening because they knew there would be a great conflict. But then in 1948, May of 1948, under the leadership of David Ben-Gurion, the Israeli people said, we are now going to be a nation. And they declared themselves a nation. And the moment they did that, around them in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, in Egypt, 240 million people who had the greatest armies of that part of the world came against that little remnant of the people of Israel to say, you know something? We're going to wipe you out this time. But guess what? It's a book written by Gary Fraser called The Miracle of Israel. It tells the miracle of what happened in preserving those people. With almost scotch tape and band-aids and bailing wire, they put together an army and an air force and withstood the onslaught of those people so that ultimately, they, in 1949, everyone declared they were a nation. Yet, they were just a small remnant of people. The Arab world still said, we are going to destroy you. We're going to take every chance we can to wipe you out. And do you know today, the number one reason why they can't have peace today is because the Palestinian leadership will not acknowledge them as a nation and say, the only way we will make peace is if you leave completely. Israel many times have been ready to sign peace agreements, but they would not acknowledge their right to exist. What happened then in 67, this little nation, it was only 17 miles wide from the Mediterranean to the outskirts of Jerusalem. They knew that they were about to be attacked by a massive Egyptian army, a massive Jordanian army, the Syrians coming over the Golan Heights. They decided they would go to war with them. And that little nation in the midst of millions of people doubled their size. They took over the Golan, took over the Jordan Valley, took over the Sinai Peninsula, and they created something they could defend and saying, you know something, we know you're on our border, you're going to come get us, and so we're going to defend it. So what does it mean to you and me? Do you realize, just think for a minute, 2,000 years since the time of Jesus, they have not existed as a nation in your generation and my generation, which the Bible has much to say about the place of Israel in prophecy. Suddenly they are a nation. Now listen, by the way, they're not just a nation. They're one of the most prosperous nations in the world. And the New York Stock Exchange, the number one country in the world for uh, companies on the New York Stock Exchange, United States, second is China, guess who's third? This little nation of 7 million people are now a financial powerhouse developing things you can never imagine. When you use on your phone the little Waze app to help you do direction, guess where that was developed? It was developed in Israel. Whenever you want to irrigate something, and the world has learned about drip irrigation, they're the ones that developed that. Did you know the largest desaltination project in the entire world is happening out of that little nation right there? Now, I don't know what that means to you. You may say, that's not a big deal. Well, if you study Scripture, you'll discover it is a big deal because God prophesies to this nation that He was going to bring them back together. Turn, if you would, over to Ezekiel. Over to the Ezekiel. You've got to Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen to this, this prophecy by Ezekiel. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, 
It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have proclaimed among the nations which you came. And I will vindicate my holiness and my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. In other words, you were scattered among them. And nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. And through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you unto your own land. Hundreds of years ago, the prophet Ezekiel, under the leadership of the Spirit of God, said there's coming a day when you're going to be scattered and you'll be amongst all the nations of the world. But there's also coming a day, and you need to be aware of it. And later on in the very next chapter, it's talking about the dry bones that come alive. I'm going to bring you alive again like no other time. Now, I, you know, you can look at that and say that's a coincidence. I look at that and saying, I believe the Bible says it's about to happen. But then what's happening physically there? Look, if you would, in verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited. And underline the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be filled instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by. Now, underline passed by, very important deal. They will say, this land, which was desolate, has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. You need to know that for the 2,000 years that Israel did not exist, their land was a wasteland. Mark Twain, the great theologian, Mark Twain, uh, wrote one time out of his visit to Israel. He said, this is the most God-forsaken place I've ever been in my life. Who would want to live here? Nothing can grow. Nothing can happen. I mean, this place is a wasteland. It was a flea-infested swampland. No one grew anything, and everyone lived in poverty. 1948, Israel takes over that land. Israel develops desaltinization. They have water. They also learn how to harness the water coming uh, down through the Banyas River, down into the uh, Jordan Valley. They learn drip irrigation. They have farming techniques that no one has ever had before. And I saw Ezekiel 37 lived out before my eyes two ways. First of all, we had gone to Egypt uh, before we had gone to Israel and made the mistake of deciding to drive uh, to, to Tel Aviv rather than to fly. Don't ever do that, okay? And so we headed out north of Cairo, a busload of us. And I want you to know, Sandy would testify to this, the most desolate property I've ever seen in my life. You think West Texas is ugly, okay, at times, all right? I want you to know it was a shade of brown that never changed. The only thing that grew there was plastic bags, okay? I mean, because they just threw their bags out and plastic trash was everywhere. And we're driving along like this, and it is desolate. We cross the Suez Canal. We cross the Sinai Peninsula, and we come to the border of Israel. And we change from an Egyptian bus, get on the other side, and we get on an Israeli bus. I want you to know my breath was taken away. Date palm trees, orange fruit or orchards, wheat growing banana groves, all kinds of stuff. And I, and I turn around and I look back and I said, wait a minute, if I'd live back over here, I'd walk across the border and say, what'd you do? 
of what it had. It's the prophecy of God saying that this land that was desolate will blossom like the Garden of Eden. Then we go to Mount Carmel. Jim Parks, you've been to Mount Carmel with me. You know what it's like. You stand there above the Jezreel Valley and you celebrate what Elijah did with the prophets of Baal and how God had won that great victory. But one of the things that we do is we stay there and we overlook the Jezreel Valley. That word passed by, what you need to know is the Jezreel Valley is the passing by place of three civilizations. The people from Africa, the people from the Far East, and the people from Europe. That's why Israel has been fought over for years. It's the land bridge between all of the inhabitants of the world. It's not unusual that God would choose his work there. It's because everybody went by. But when they would go by, they would see the desolation of the Jezreel Valley. And by the way, it's about two miles away up on one of those hills is the city of Megiddo. And that talks about the Armageddon battle that is going to come. It's always going to, always has been a place where they would fortify because it controlled that valley that was so strategic. But it was a flea infested swamp in 1948. But Jimmy, stand there today and you look. It is the most fertile piece of ground in all the world. They learned you could take eucalyptus trees, plant them. They would draw the moisture out of the soil so that they can fertilize it because the moisture had been there. It was a very fertile soil. Now that desolate place is called the breadbasket of Europe. It blossoms like crazy. They feed Europe out of it. It produces more stuff per acre than any place in the world. Well, guess what? God said that was going to happen. And when that happens, God's people need to be aware. And Jesus said, you need to be aware that there will be the budding of the tree, the birth pains. And as you observe it, you need to know something is going to happen. Then one other thing quickly. Jesus talked about in these last days, there would be lawlessness in the land. And that lawlessness and immorality would increase exponentially. Listen to the words of Jesus, chapter 24. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. By the way, that word nation is the word ethne. The ethne will rise against other ethnes, kingdom against kingdoms. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. These are but the beginning, listen, ladies, the birth pains. And they will deliver you up to be tri for tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. By the way, did you know more people have been martyred in the name of Jesus in the last hundred years than all the rest of the time put together? Do you read in the news every single day all over the world of Christians being murdered and persecuted? Jesus said, this is going to happen. Then many will fall away. They will betray one another. They will hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Now, I just want to ask you, do you see what's happening out here around us? Do you see the exponential movement of lawlessness? Do you see today you can't even go out to the store? You, if you cut somebody off on the interstate, they're liable to shoot you for it. I mean, all around us, there's lawlessness. There's these grab, uh, bash and grab burglars. They just rush into a business, smash the scene, and tear everything out. No one even seems to bother to arrest them. 
What's going on? A lawlessness. I mean, we're, we're all getting armed today. Why? Because we know, don't know what's going to happen to us. When I go to churches to preach, used to, I would go, and the first thing I would do is go to the sound booth, get my mic, come up and do a mic check. Next thing I'd do is visit with the worship leader, how we'd start and conclude the service. I'd look at the order of worship to see when I was up and when I was down. You know what the main thing I do now? When I walk in the door, the first person to greet me is the security people. Now, praise God, we have the best security system in the world right here. Thank God for that. But even in the church, even in the schools, the evidence of lawlessness and immorality is just all around us. And it, it's not stopping. It's growing exponentially. And let me forewarn you, it's not going to get better. I don't care who's president. I don't care who's a governor. I don't care who's in charge. We're on a downward path, the Bible would say to us, of the increasing of what's going to happen. And Christians need to beware. Persecution is coming as well. And I believe these are signs of the coming of Jesus. I think what it's going to do is prepare us for the Antichrist. The Bible speaks of a world leader. Now, I used to think, you know, no one would ever take over our sovereignty. But I can say to you right now, in the name of peace and prosperity, I think we have a world that's ready to bow down to anybody if they will give this peace and prosperity that we want so bad. And nations, people are willing to give up their sovereignty in the name of something like this. I believe Jesus said, that's the birth pains that I'm coming. You say, well, okay, what would he say to us? Well, chapter 25, all right? We're going to read a parable. I'm going to make three quick comments about it, and then we're going to be done. Look at what Jesus said. It's like this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, chapter 25, verse 1, went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. For the foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answer said, since there's not enough for us, for you, go to the dealers and buy. And they went going to buy. And the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. And afterwards, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. What's therefore? For you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, to understand this parable, let me give you some facts. First of all, in the Jewish world, in their wedding world, most of the time, not always, it went through a certain pattern. You had your attendants. Now, the word 10 is a complete number. I don't think it means, ladies, that you ought to have 10 attendants at every wedding, okay? Not saying that. But what you have very clearly is the groom, who is Jesus, and the bride, who is his church. And what they would do in the Jewish world, and kids, y'all need to understand, you need to be thankful of this in the Jewish world, the mom and dads arranged the marriage. You wouldn't even get to see who they were going to pick. Wouldn't you love that? Okay, I wouldn't want to do that, all right? Many times we're in, we're in Israel, we're at a hotel, and we'll see a, a boy and a girl, a young boy and girl there, but over to the side of the parents because during that period, that engagement period, they can't be alone. Then you had the betrothal period. That is another period because what happens is after they talk to one another, they decide to do the marriage. They have a wedding ceremony, and they get in front of the priest, of the rabbi, and they say their vows of commitment to one another. And that's what the period, by the way, that Jesus was in whenever uh, that Mary and Joseph were in whenever Jesus was to be born. 
And that's why it was so bad that she was pregnant is because during that period, you could not be alone together. So how did she get pregnant, they would ask, okay? And so you had that period. But what would happen then is the groom would go home and prepare the house for the coming of the bride and the building of a home and the building of their life together. He would come back and he would put all of his finances together. And he would then say to those who were his attendants, you guys get ready. I'm about to go get her. I'm about to go get her. And so they'd gather at his house and he would say, hey, it's time. All right. Everybody go, yahoo, yahoo. All right. They'd get so excited about it. And the thing they use right here, the midnight cries, because usually people were not expecting this at midnight. But they would say, yes, they would blow a trumpet. They would light their lantern. They would light their, uh, uh, their lamps. And they would start down the street. They would play instruments. They would shout and sing great songs. And the whole city would know that the groom is going to get the bride. And the bride would hear that coming. She would waken her attendants and say, hey, he's coming, he's coming. And they would all get ready because they want to join in the, uh, the uh, processional to that wedding feast that they would have, that great gathering of everyone who loved that bride and that groom. And he would take that woman and they would get together and all the attendants in them would go to the wedding feast. But what Jesus said is some of you, some of you are wise and some of you are foolish. As you look at the coming of Jesus and the fact that it could come at any moment, what is he saying about this? Three things I'll conclude. First thing he said, in light of the coming of Jesus that could come just like that, you need to be ready. I wish we had time today. We'd read through the text the number of times. He said, be ready, be ready, be ready. You say, how do you get ready for something like this? Let me tell you how you get ready. You need to know that you know that you know if he comes where you're going. So many times you visit with people about their relationship with God and their statement is, well, uh, I think I'm getting going to heaven or I hope I'm going to heaven. Or they start telling you, I've been baptized at this church or I was confirmed at this church or, or I did this in ministry or I'm this much better than other people or I've lived by the golden rule. They'll use all of these things. You need to know. None of that gets you ready. There's only one thing that will get you ready. And that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The only way for you and I to know that we know that we know that we know we're going to heaven is that we know we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As a 20-year-old college student, I looked at my life and I said, you know, it's not going anywhere. I tried to change my life, my language, my lifestyle and everything to get myself right with God. It did me no good. And then one day, one sweet lady said, you're trying to do what only God can do through you. And until you give your life to Christ, you won't know how to do it or have the power to do it. And I surrendered my life and my heart to Jesus because I realized I couldn't save myself. Can I ask you this morning? Are you ready? Do you know that you know that you know Jesus Christ has taken your place on the cross and died for your sins and your willingness to receive him into your life is you're acknowledging you need him for salvation? In light of where we stand in biblical history, I would know if I'm ready. And today, in a few moments, we're going to have an invitation. 
We're not asking for the good people to come forward and acknowledge it. We're not asking for people who want to be baptized so they can show something about their life religiously. We're going to invite those who want a relationship with God through Jesus Christ so they will be ready for the coming of Jesus to come. We would be glad to help you. This whole campus, this whole church, one purpose for the gospel, for you to know Jesus. Secondly, how about those around you? Are they ready? You say, Gary, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is every one of us in this room have brothers and sisters and parents and cousins and friends and neighbors and coworkers. And the issue isn't your friendship with them. The issue is what are you doing with them? Do you recognize today that this isn't about them moving to a better house or a better job or have something better in life. This is about where they will spend eternity. And our church is so focused on learning to build relationships with people so that we can have the opportunity to do what? Tell them about our Jesus. All around you and me, there are hundreds and even thousands who are unprepared for the coming of Christ. And are we going to just sit here and watch and wonder if something's going to happen good for them? Or have we decided our main reason for God leaving us here is for that person to know Jesus as Savior and that we would do everything we can do so that that could happen within their lives. Third thing, I'll conclude. I'm going to make a statement to you. Whatever God has called you to do, you better get about it. Let me say that one more time. Whatever God's called you to do, it's time for you to leave this other stuff behind. Now, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy the world God's given us, enjoy the relationship God's given us. But every one of us in this room have been called to something God's prepared us for. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared for us. We should walk in them. All the things God's ever done in your life is to prepare you for ministry. It isn't so you'll feel better. It isn't so you can brag on God. It's because God's got something for you. You say, well, Gary, that's one thing to talk about a calling. You, you preach your types. Well, listen, God hadn't called you to that or you'd already done something about it. But that's just a small minority. What's God called you to do? What has God said to your heart? I prepared you. I have shaped you. I've made you for a purpose. Why won't you get about it? It says in that parable, Jesus said, they were lazy and they slept. I'm afraid the people of God are sleeping through this opportunity for us to bring people to Jesus. You say, Gary, what do I do? I, I just think about our own church. I think about several years ago, Brian Hammonds, who was a Chairman of Deacons, taught Sunday school classes, came and said, I think God wants me to do something more. I'm going to start looking for mission trips. I encouraged him. Some. He got online, found a medical mission trip to a place I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of Moldova until he came and told me about it. Brian Hammond started that ministry, and today, fielders, planting churches, helping people right next to the Ukraine, such a strategic place, ministering to people like crazy. Where did it start? Here? started here. God put it in the heart of somebody. I think of Mike and Alice Lally, 
who lead Trinity kids at field all around the country years ago. David Pointer and I were praying about what was the greatest need in Tarrant County. We went to the Tarrant County uh, Humane, or not uh, Tarrant County Social Services. They said the main need in Tarrant County is abused children. So we searched a way to minister to abused children. Now, out of starting what was known as Royal Family Kids Camp, is now Trinity Kids, now involves 23 different churches, now is ministering to kids like crazy. Is it happening here? Started here and moved here. Jim, Jim Buffington, Maryland. Well, the only thing better than Jim being a Razorback is uh, Jim Buffington's family. He wouldn't mind me telling you this. Went through the terrible trauma of what happened in his family with his father. His father hiring a hitman to kill his mother, really to kill all the children too, Jim. Out of that experience, Jim's father was sentenced to prison there in prison, God changed his life through Jesus, and he led hundreds to faith in Jesus Christ. What does Jim Buffington do with that? He leaves a secure job as a very, very successful businessman to lead a Bridges to Life ministry to the prisoners. They just had their 70,000th graduate who've gone through their ministry. And by the way, 80% of those don't go back. That's right, Jim. And Jim... Jim needs some helpers out here at these prisons. Helping. Where did that start? Start here. Started there. Then God took it to the world. I, I, could, I could spend the rest of the afternoon telling you more and more stories. But what God's saying is we can sit around and say, yes, Jesus is coming soon and sounds so religious. We can talk about the signs and we can be so literate about it, but what are we going to do with it? Are we going to just be hearers of the word? Or are we going to be doers of the word? All over this community and this world and this church, there are hundreds of opportunities for you to be involved in ministry. And in light of Jesus coming, are you going to sleep? Are you just going to sit around? Brag on how good the preaching and music is with Jason and Reggie and Kyle. Are you going to say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Here I am. Here I am. Send me. Now, that doesn't mean you quit your job. Mike and Alice Lally, Mike's still working, still works at Northrop, does this in his extra 100 hours a week. <laughs> Brian Hammers is still a pharmacist. God's called you to something. Don't waste your life in the other stuff. When God's called you to something, that'll make a difference in this kingdom. And when that shout comes and the groom comes to get the bride, I don't know about you. I want him to find me about what he's called me to do for his glory. So we're going to have an invitation right now. We do it all the time at Fielder. There's going to be ministers here at the front. There's nothing special about us. We just want to pray with you and help you. Some of you in this room need a relationship with Jesus Christ. When our band comes out and starts to play, these folks are going to come up here. You may have to come from under this balcony somewhere, somewhere in the middle of an aisle. But I can promise you, if you come to Christ, it'll change your life forever. More importantly, it'll change your life for eternity. 
and you come. But the others of you need, you want somebody to be your prayer partner with a brother, sister, child, uncle, aunt, neighbor that needs Jesus. You may need to just come pray. And it could be God's called you to something. And the first thing you need to do is tell somebody about it. So it'll kind of create some accountability. If nothing else, just to look in the eyes of someone and say, God's called me to something. Would you join me in praying? But I'll be about what God's called me to do. Why are we doing this? So we get more people in this place? No. So when that shout comes, <laughs> when that shout comes, we'll shout and we'll be ready and we will go where God wants us to be. I'm going to pray. When I finish praying, you're going to stand. Kyle's going to lead us in music. Ministers are going to come. Those of you who are watching online, one of our ministers will talk to you about what you're to do. But what are you going to do? Father, thank you today. Thank you today for the opportunity to give our lives to you and settle our eternity. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be involved in eternity's purpose, what you've called us to be. Oh, God, today, don't let us leave this place without settling some issues for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand with me, sing together. Us as ministers will be here at the front, men and women to pray with you. You step out and you come right now. You ask God, what do you want me to do? You step out and come because God wants to change your life for eternity by you coming right now. We have a baptistry right here. If you want to give your life to Christ, we have the clothes, we have everything you need so that you can be baptized. God's speaking to your heart about that today or to come to this altar. Kyle's going to lead us. You step out and come this morning, would you?